Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, May 10th, 2012. Okay, we're doing our light edition today because, well, I'm giving a lecture. <laughs> As we speak, people are piling into Harbor Shores Church in Cicero, Indiana, in order to hear me lecture. So I'm multitasking right now. I'm doing radio and lecturing at the same time. Some might accuse me of speaking out of both sides of my mouth. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There just is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We're doing the comparative work to see and really test that the, those claims that people are making and seeing if what they're saying is true. Part of what we do here is, well, actually all of what we do is education. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way. We, what's the point in doing any particular job if you can't have a little bit of fun? But what I'm going to do today, because like I said, I'm multitasking right now, is I'm going to uh, hand the microphone over to uh, Dr. Adam Francisco of Concordia University, Irvine, and he is going to be delivering a brief, it's not a very long lecture at all, talking about contemporary challenges to the New Testament Gospels, and this is specific to what do we do with those people who claim that Christianity, well, is nothing more than you know a ripoff or a recasting, if you would, of the ancient mythologies that were. I mean, weren't there ancient deities in the uh, in the Mediterranean world that died and rose again and all that kind of? That's the like the whole premise behind uh, that movie Zeitgeist of a couple of years ago, basically trying to you know topple Christianity with these claims that Christianity, ah, eh, it's nothing but a rehash of of ancient mythologies. It's all the same thing. Is that really true? Is Christianity undone by these supposed, you know, parallels to these ancient mythologies? Well, Dr. Francisco is going to tackle that straight up, and so I will turn the microphone over to him, and I will, well, hopefully you will all hear from me tomorrow, Lord willing, and uh, on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith, if we get good audio out of tonight's lecture, my intention is to play that lecture for tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So uh, with that, here's Dr. Adam Francisco, and uh, we'll catch you all tomorrow. All right, why don't we go ahead and get started. Um, the last two weeks, we've been going up into the wire. Um, tonight, or today, not tonight, uh, I'll finish a little early. That way we can ask, or you can ask more questions if you'd like, and we can get done at the, the right time. 
uh, this week. But we've been, um, just to recap what we've done so far, uh, the first, or two weeks ago, this is the first uh, talk we did was on the issue or the charge that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't the only Gospels out there. They were arbitrarily chosen by the church, um, perhaps because of for political or theological reasons, but there were other Gospels that early church or Christians can choose from, uh, from which they can get their picture or their knowledge of Jesus. The problem with that claim is, which is quite popular, it's out there all over the place, is that all the other Gospels that are out there, the apocryphal or non-canonical Gospels, are all late writings. The authors weren't eyewitnesses. They weren't in a position to report on what Jesus did or said accurately. In fact, many of them were written in, on the northern shores of the Mediterranean, in France and Spain and Italy. None of them were written in, as far as we know, first century Palestine. The second charge was, even if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the best sources for Jesus' life, his work, um, the things he said, the text itself is so corrupted that it can't be trusted. That claim, um, I'm kind of glad to say, is being challenged uh, pretty robustly by serious, um, uh, fair-minded historians and New Testament scholars today and is being met and being disproven. Even so, there still are quite a few out there who will, who will levy this charge. Um, unfortunately, they're published by popular authors, but as Dan Brown uh, put it in the, the Da Vinci Code, everybody loves a good conspiracy theory. People don't want Christianity to be true, so they'll concoct whatever theory they can come up with to discredit it. This third challenge we're going to look at today is similar to the other three, but it doesn't really care about whether the text is reliable or not, and doesn't really care about whether there are other Gospels out there or not. It claims that that's uh, of no consequence. If you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the theology of the Christian church, from the earliest church up until today, the theology hasn't changed, it, none of it is really born from historic fact. It's all borrowed or plagiarized from mythical religions uh, from the ancient world. This claim emerged in the late 19th century and lasted up until about the middle of the 20th century. It started in a German theological school called the History of Religions School that had as its assumption that God doesn't reveal himself if there is a God to begin with. So therefore, all religions, Christianity and everything else, are all a product of mythical embellishment or the product of man's human beings, the imagination of human beings. And it's born, this school of historical, historical religion school is born or emerges about the same time Darwin publishes his Origin of Species and puts forward the theory of biological evolution. And so the history of religion school says that religion evolves just like life has evolved. Uh, that was the zeitgeist or the spirit of the times, evolution. Um, everything can be accounted for, not just life, uh, but, but even ideas can be accounted for by, by looking at ideas, theological ideas, and otherwise through the lens of evolution. So this school said, in order to understand or explain how Christianity emerged, uh, we've got to find 
earlier precedents. And as many of these scholars looked back or imagined the past, as, as it actually turns out to be, uh, they found several uh, mystery religions, mythological religions from the ancient world, ancient Near East, um, even as far as Persia, that they claimed had parallel ideas to Christianity. And so for them, the obvious conclusion was Christianity just simply borrowed or plagiarized from these ancient religions. Before we get into this, the, just to put, put you at ease, there are some very minor inconsequential par parallels. The real big problem, and the reason why this school was defunct up until about the 1990s, is because all these mystery religions that have some minor, minute parallels, when it comes to them being written down in texts, they post-date the arrival or the emergence of Christianity. So they can't be drawn from these sources because the sources weren't around. Nevertheless, historians, uh, bad historians, are the most untrustworthy of all people. Now, how can, you, how can you identify a bad historian or a bad scholar in general? It's somebody who assumes something is true or something is the case to begin with and then concocts a theory on the basis of that assumption. That's bad scholarship, bad thinking through and through. Um, but nevertheless, this sort of thinking was very popular in the 19th and in the first half of the 20th century. It's still very popular today, but it takes different forms. Let me, take, uh, let me just give you a couple examples of recent literature or recent stuff that has come out um, that, that uh, advances this old dated theory that Christianity borrowed from mythological religions. First of all, you, you all remember... Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. I think it came out 2004 or so. Um, uh, Sir Tebring. Um, I've only seen the movie. I didn't bother reading the book. Uh, though I should have. I probably shouldn't admit that on camera. But I, uh, uh, it, it was played by that famous British actor whose name I can't remember. I had it this morning. Um, but uh, he says to the two detectives as he's schooling them on Christianity, as if he's the expert on Christianity, that, and he says something to the effect that nothing in Christianity is original. That is the idea that a God-man was born of a virgin, lived, performed miracles, died, and rose again, is not something new. You find it in earlier religions. Just as an aside, you don't find it anywhere. Um, uh, another book... Put, or a book put out about the same time as the Da Vinci Code, maybe a couple of years before, it was called The Jesus Mysteries. And that book argued that, uh, just like Sir Tebring did in this fiction book turned movie, that there are a whole slew of ancient religions, and there are a whole slew of ancient religions or secret or mystery religions, um, that if you look through all of them, uh, you will find all the precedents or all the theological doctrines of Christianity buried in these religions. Again, that claims to completely false, because all these old secret mystery religions, uh, put, in terms of them being written down in texts, they were written down much later than Christianity, uh, the, the, uh, the birth or the origin of Christianity. Um, uh, most recently, uh, the, the, Catholic, or the, the Catholic, the atheist polemicists, 
uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and others, and Muslim apologists are picking up on this old, outdated, discredited theory and saying things like uh, Fatui, Louis Fatui, a Muslim apologist, says that Paul, what Paul did was just picked and chose from existing religions and concocted a nice systematic theology and advanced it as, a, as this new religion of Christianity. But don't make the mistake, he argues, that Christianity is rooted in any sort of historic fact. Again, that claims totally nonsense. Um, so what are these parallels, uh, if there are any? And I've said a couple times that they're minute or, or of no consequence. One is the old, uh, the old religion of Baal worship. You didn't hear about Baal worship in the Old Testament. Uh, our sources for Baal worship are, of course, the Old Testament, but all sorts of inscriptions and things like that found in rocks in the ancient Near East, especially in the Levant from Syria down to the Holy Land. Um, and there are all sorts of versions of the story of Baal. One version says that Baal um, was the son of a divine or a goddess, uh, and he was having a bit of a quarrel with Mot or Mot, as it's sometimes pronounced, M-O-T, who was the god of the underworld. Baal was the god of t- temporal reality in this version of Baalism. And Mott approached Baal and said, the only reason why you've got all these people worshiping you is because you bless them with rain and good crops. Uh, if you weren't allowed to provide all these material or agricultural blessings to people, uh, the people would turn their back on you and worship me instead. Uh, so Mott draws or, or invites Baal down to the underworld to have some sort of altercation with Mott. And what happens is Mott swallows up Baal. Baal's mommy goes down and approaches Mott and says and, and chastises him, and there, there might be some sort of genealogical connection there. It's, it's hard to say with all these ancient religions. But uh, Baal's mother comes down, chastises Mott, and says, I want my son back. And gets, uh, negotiates an agreement with Mott and says, you will uh, uh, allow my son out of you eventually. So Baal's mother goes back to her place up in the heavens. And then all of a sudden it starts to rain and Baal's father says, my son's alive. There's the precedent for the resurrection, some say. Does that sound like anything like the resurrection of Jesus? No. But it is out there. It's an ancient religion. It does predate Christianity. The texts, the actual written texts you find it, the story in, um, do to some extent, although the details aren't filled in, uh, predate Christianity. That's the one, one of two more exceptions to the rule that these texts are all post-date Christianity. Another very popular um, ancient or secret reli- or mystery religion that predates Christianity um, that um, many allege is the chief source of Christianity is the religion known as Mithraism, based off an old Persian myth that dates to about the 14th century B.C., the earliest records we find of it in inscriptions, 14th century B.C. It doesn't appear in the Mediterranean world until at the very earliest, 90 A.D., but more likely the middle of the 2nd century, around 140, 150 A.D., uh, but it still did exist before Christianity. Uh, there are uh, most scholars, if you, if you look at those so-called scholars out there who claim Christianity is, is plagiarized secret religion or mystery religion, will say that, the, that Mithraism is the, the major source of, of Christianity's borrowing. 
What does Mithraism claim? Or at least according to contemporary authors, what does Mithraism claim? Well, it says that Mithras, this Persian god, or the god of, the, of the, these ancient Persians, was born of a virgin in a cave, was a great teacher and had 12 disciples, promised his followers immortality, sacrificed himself, he was buried and rose three days after he was buried. Uh, after he rose, he gave to his followers the instruction to have a Thanksgiving meal, a Eucharist meal. And lastly, he was known by his followers as the, as the Good Shepherd or the Logos. That's what contemporary authors claim about Mithraism. Do you find that? No. What, what happens is you get contemporary authors who go hunting in the ancient world for anything that might look like a parallel to uh, Christianity, and they interpret these mystery religions through the lens of Christian theology. Here's what you get if you look at the sources, the primary texts, and also the inscriptions about the, uh, this, this Persian god Mithras. He was not born of a virgin. He was born from a rock, fully uh, a, compl- uh, a mature adult, but, but divine, uh, butt naked. Sorry for the B-U-T-T word, Tim. Um, was not a great teacher, had 12 disciples, but was seen exclusively as a god who had lots of followers. Uh, he did promise his followers immortality. That's a common theme in most religions, so that's not a big deal. He did not sacrifice himself, as contemporary authors claim. Rather, he, and in the old Roman appropriation of Mithraism, uh, he and uh, Sol Invictus, the invincible sun, the god that Constantine worshipped before his conversion to Christianity, uh, agreed to sacrifice a bull. Um, and in some way, at least in one version of it, it said to provide atonement for 40 years for, for soldiers who had committed atrocities in war. And so what you get in the practice of Mithraism in its Roman concoction is for 40 years before it was completely outlawed, people who followed the god Mithras would go climb into a pit and the priests of this, this secret religion would gut a bull over them and cause the bull to bleed all over them to provide some, some idea of atonement for their temporal sins. Uh, but that lasted 40 years and it dates about 300, it comes around 300 years after Christianity is around. Uh, the myth that Mithras uh, uh, sacrificed a bull, there are some earlier precedents, but it wasn't, wasn't believed and, and, and um, seen as a, a central element of Mithraism until much after Christianity. In fact, uh, Edwin Yamauchi, a scholar from actually a very good, solid scholar who's now about 90 years old, but still going strong from Ohio, claims that the reason why th- this was brought into Mithraism in the 3rd or 4th century A.D. is because Mithraism was competing with Christianity. And actually, Mithraism borrowed from Christianity. That's the major claim out there. Or that's the more scholarly claim. Um, in terms of Mithras or Mithra being buried after being or after dying and rising three days later, there's no record of Mithra dying. There's no record of him or her, him, in most versions, being buried and rising from the dead. That's something that's been invented by, by those who are looking for a nice, tight theory to explain the rise of Christianity from Mithraism. 
Um, and that Mithra was referred to as Good Shepherd or Logos, no record of that whatsoever either. But contemporary authors claim it. But as I said, uh, especially those authors who masquerade as historians, uh, don't trust them. Don't trust any single one of them. Uh, another major myth out there or ancient religion that is alleged to have been uh, at least a source for Christianity is the Egyptian Isis cult. I don't know how many of you have heard of it. The earliest textual evidence that is written in a, a book of, or a codex of some sort dates to the middle to late 2nd century. So it postdates Christianity, but you find inscriptions and fragmentary evidence of it uh, before Christianity. The myth goes like this. Oh, Isis, and there are a couple different versions of it. Um, so I'm just going to tell you one. Uh, the, the closest one, or the one that the, the scholar or the, the alleged scholars like to use. Isis is married to Osiris. Osiris has a brother named Seth. Seth is jealous of Osiris for whatever reason and kills his brother Osiris, puts him in a coffin, buries him in the, the Nile. Um, Isis, who's Osiris' husband, or wife, finds Osiris, brings him back out of the Nile, perhaps gives life to him, but then Seth comes and finds Osiris again, cuts him up into 14 pieces and scatters these 14 pieces across the earth. And so uh, Isis goes looking again, finds all 14, some versions say only 13 pieces, and puts them back together. And now uh, Osiris becomes the protector of the god of the underworld. Sounds like a resurrection, doesn't it? No, not at all. But that's the claim out there, that, that there's some idea of there being rebirth or, or a resurrection. And so scholars hunting, or authors, pseudo-scholars out there hunting for precedence behind Christianity say this is yet another source for Christianity. Now, if you took the method of all these, these authors and you applied the same methodology to contemporary figures... Uh, you, you, you take the assumption that if you can find earlier precedent, even if it's really bad precedent, uh, you can explain a, what they would call a myth. And if, let's, if you take that and apply it to contemporary American presidents, in particular Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, the results are staggering. Abraham Lincoln, elected to Congress in 1846. JFK, 1946. Lincoln, president, 1860. JFK, 1960. Their surnames or their last names each have seven letters. Both were concerned with civil rights. Both lost a child or children, in the case of the Lincolns, in the White House. Uh, both were shot on a Friday. Both were shot in the head. Lincoln's secretary warned him not to go to the theater. JFK's warned him not to go to Dallas. Both were assassinated by Southerners and succeeded by uh, presidents with the last name Johnson, Andrew Johnson and Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, Andrew Johnson was born in 1808, Lyndon Johnson, 1908. John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839, Lee Harvey Oswald, if he did assassinate him, <laughs> kidding, <laughs> uh, was born in 1939. Uh, both, both these assassins had three names, and they all equal up to 15 letters. Bo, uh, uh, John Wilkes Booth ran from the theater to a warehouse where he was caught. Oswald ran from a warehouse to a theater. Both Oswald and, and Booth were assassinated before their trials. There's a lot of parallels there. 
you take the method of some of these critical quasi pseudo scholars and apply it to the to uh, JFK and Abraham Lincoln, you can come to the conclusion that maybe JFK didn't exist, <laughs> or at least JFK is the or JFK is the invention of the Democratic Party because the Republicans had their hero Lincoln, the the Democrats needed a 20th century hero, JFK. Now, what's the problem with this? Apart from that, it's stupid. <laughs> the problem is there are a lot of folks here who were alive when JFK was alive, and maybe some were old enough to, in a sense, act as eyewitnesses of his life. Um, there are these parallels, that, but that doesn't mean that the, the, the biography of JFK was ripped off the biography of Abraham Lincoln. That's just stupid, as a, to put it very, in a very scholarly way. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, a... Or that kind of thinking is the product of a logical fallacy called post hoc, post hoc propter, uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc. Because or, or after this, therefore because of this. That is, if something comes after something and there look like there's some parallels, whatever they may be, that doesn't mean they're connected. And that's what you find in all these folks who claim that, that Christianity is borrowed from all these myths. There's no reason whatsoever to believe that that's the case. Um, it doesn't take a Christian to make that claim. Any good historian will say there's something radically different about Christianity. Not only is the theology radically different, because in all the secret religions, you never really get a universal atonement for sin. Uh, you never get a... A, a, a factual claim to a resurrection. You don't get eyewitnesses. All the authors of these ancient mystery religions, none of them write as if these things actually took place in real space and time. But that's what you get with Christianity. You get the claim that Jesus died, that he rose from the dead, that he appeared to Peter, James, and 500 people, um, and you can go and check it out. So in terms of, the, I mentioned in the beginning of this talk, there are some minor parallels. I, don't, I mean, they're minor at best, uh, but most of them post-date Christianity. Um, but they're not, it doesn't mean in any way that they're connected. Uh, Christianity is hugely different. First of all, it's, as I just said, it's based on eyewitness accounts. That is, eyewitnesses claim that they saw the risen Jesus. Or companions of eyewitnesses investigated, interrogated the eyewitnesses to see what these claims were and to write down these claims in the case of Mark and Luke. Also, if you go hunting back in history, you don't, I, I don't think we need to do away with the New Testament whatsoever. But if we want to throw the critics a bone... There are two uncontested facts from the first century, around between 30 and 33 A.D. One is that Jesus was crucified on a cross, and you don't need the Gospels for that. The Gospels are the best source. They're eyewitnesses. But it's a known historic, in fact, an accomplished fact, as historians like to claim, a fait accompli, if I can try to pronounce French, uh, that the crucifixion of Christ was done. It happened. You can't change that. Think about what that means for salvation. 
Uh, and the second major historic fact relating to, to Jesus is that after he was buried, his tomb was empty. That's what any historian of whatever faith tradition, minus the ideologues out there, um, can, can arrive at. That Jesus was crucified and that the tomb he was placed in was empty on Easter morning. Now, how one explains that empty tomb, that's the big clincher. If we're to make, if we're to explain a histor- historic phenomena, how does one do that? As a historian or as a, just a reasonable person, we do that in accordance with evidences. We don't just come up with a theory. We look at all the evidence and weigh it. That's the way historians approach things anyway, good historians. The only conclusion that one can get to on the basis of evidence, because there isn't counter evidence, is that he rose from the dead. The eyewitnesses tell it. The whole church that's growing tremendously, that's their major confession. You have men and women uh, who go to their death based on that claim. Paul Meyer has this little line where he says, myths don't make martyrs. If all the apostles minus John knew Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they're not going to go, they're not going to be executed for that claim. Um, If there is one religion out there that is radically different from the others, as you all know, it's Christianity. Um, But I don't mean that just in terms of its theology, but in terms of its historicity. If there's one religion out there that could have easily been squashed and would have been squashed if people could have done it, it would have been Christianity. Christianity is born in Jerusalem, in the most unlikely of all places. It immediately becomes a problem, not just for Jews, but for the Roman authorities. The claims of the Christian church right from the get-go are that Jesus was crucified for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again according to the scriptures. What that means, and it all happened as we confessed in the creed this morning, under Pontius Pilate. It happened in real history. What that means is Christianity can be falsified. That is, Christianity can be proven false. That may sound like a weakness to Christianity, but it's actually its greatest strength. No other religion out there can be falsified. When push comes to shove, they're defended on the basis of faith. Christianity can be defended. Its, its legitimacy or veracity can be defended on the basis of historic fact, simply because it can be ver- verified or validated and, more, mo- just as importantly, falsified. A couple things about the New Testament, though. Um, it's interesting that when you go to the resurrection narratives in all the Gospels, even though Mark's a little short, uh, one wishes there was more. Um, but there isn't. Uh, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, who were they? Women. If you go back to the first century, when, the, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing, and in their context, in a, in a heavily Jewish context, the last people they're going to put in as witnesses to the resurrection to validate the claims of Christianity are women. If you go to the first century and look at Jewish literature and their views of women in terms of, of them giving witness or, or giving evidence or, or bearing uh, testimony in court, um, it's very clear that they didn't trust women whatsoever. Josephus, the, Roman, the Jewish Roman historian, kind of a turncoat, some alleged, uh, says that a, women, a woman's testimony in court is not worth 
anything. Uh, you find that same idea in the Talmud. So the last people you're going to use as your first witnesses are women. But that's, in fact, what we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why is that? Because that's what happened. That Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are interested in reporting things that actually happen, regardless of how it is, it, 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 uh, it's, it's received. They're interested in reporting fact. And that's, that's Christianity. Uh, when you encounter claims, counterclaims of Christianity or skepticism out there, um, and, and Dr. Van Boris asked a really good question last week, um, even though I kidded with him. Um, we do not need to cower in a corner. Or when we're asked for the reason for the hope within, that is, asked for, uh, for justification of our faith, we don't need to appeal to that same faith in a circular way. Uh, all we need to do, in, in, in a nutshell, is point to Jesus. He's not a myth or legend, is actual fact. The things he did, he said, uh, are actual fact. As Peter put it in 2 Peter 2.12, we did not concoct or follow cleverly devised myths. This is fact. Uh, so those, those counterclaims out there, the skepticism out there, we do not need to be afraid. Uh, not that you want to spend your time dabbling in this all the time. You'll go mad. Maybe you turn to drink. Um <laughs> But it's certainly something we can face with or face off with and contend with uh, with confidence. Uh, we have 10 minutes. I told you we'd get it done a little early today, but I want to leave 10 minutes for questions so we can get done at an appropriate time uh, this week. Oh, boy. So, Dr. Francisco, what you're, seems you're saying here is that we find an unbeliever. We talk about textual criticism and Dan Brown and, and, and this and this and Josephus. And then they, they believe, uh, and they're saved. That's, I mean, is, that, is that what you're saying? No. It's, Have uh, I said uh, that? Yeah. No. Explain. Uh, um, these, uh, these three lectures are informed uh, by my context, contested vocation as a historian. I'm called by my colleague, a theologian, a bad theologian, uh, as, as a historian, but also as a historian who works as an apologist as well. Um, this sort of knowledge we've been talking about is, very, I think, important and essential to, to have, but it's not um, something that needs to be spewed out uh, right away when encountering the unbeliever, as you called them. The infidel, I call them. I'm kidding. That's not, uh, uh, apologetics is... If, if, it's, if our, the apologetic task is informed by Scripture, it's a response to those who have questions. Uh, so when somebody challenges Christianity or has a question about it, then we respond. We give a defense. But it's not necessarily the first thing one does. Uh, Christians in their vocation are simply called to bear witness to Christ. Speak the gospel to their neighbor. Uh, bring them to church. Uh, so they can hear the gospel very clearly and see it enacted in the liturgy. Um, apologetics is sort of, it's essential, but it's second tier. As uh, Dr. Montgomery, the leading apologist in our circles, puts it, and other circles, uh, evangelism first, or speaking the gospel first, apologetics second, if it's, if it's necessary. Uh, these three topics we've talked on 
happen to be very common themes out there in terms of challenges to the Christian faith. That's why we, we chose them. But uh, I would certainly never say, um, or I would say with Luther, that we cannot by our own reason or strength or in considering the evidence or what have you, come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is solely the work or the province of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that does not mean, however, that we can't come to certain historical knowledge or, or the unbeliever can't come to certain historical knowledge about Jesus. They certainly can. The demons even believe and tremble. Uh, but that's not, not, knowledge isn't saving faith. It's quite a different thing. Uh, you can get into the theological issues surrounding that uh, with Dr. Rosenblatt. Um, uh, but, uh, but I would certainly never say... I'll also add with Luther, or confess with Luther, that in, according to the first article of the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, that God has given us our reason and our senses and still preserves them. So uh, Christians shouldn't be afraid of, of being reasonable. Good heavens, please, <laughs> please be reasonable. Uh, but it has nothing to do with saving, saving faith. That's something the Holy Spirit operates in, with, and under the Word and Sacrament. Dr. Francisco, could you comment on the difference between the texts we have from Christianity uh, as compared with those from other historical events, historical mm -hmm. personages, and so on? Uh, boy. Yeah. Uh, well, let me quote Daniel Wallace again. What we have with the New Testament, the manuscripts, is, an, as he puts it, an embarrassment of riches. Nothing from the ancient world compares. Um, at best, you have with Suetonius, late 1st, early 2nd century author, you have about 200 manuscripts backing up the printed edition of the Lives of the Caesars. And the earliest manuscript dates to about the 9th, somewhere between the 9th and 10th century. So you've got 800 years that passed from when Suetonius first wrote and the first manuscript we have. With the, the New Testament, uh, the time frame from when they originally wrote to the earliest manuscripts or fragments that we have is, is minuscule for, for ancient literature. It's actually almost a miracle, if you will, that we have some of the stuff we have, like uh, the fragment of John that dates to about between 117 and 125 AD. That's 30 years maybe a little longer after John wrote, depending on when, when John actually wrote. Uh, there's this, I've mentioned it a couple times, this fragment. I'm real excited about it. A friend of mine who's in, in New Testament studies says, uh, don't get excited about it because there's just not enough to go with here. But this fragment of Mark in the seventh Qumran cave, that might, it might be the fragment of Mark that dates to the 50s. That's incredible. Um, that we have that stuff is just simply remarkable. You don't have that in any ancient literature. If you want to go back to Homer, usually Homer's Iliad is oftentimes used. We have Homer, whoever Homer was, wrote between the 9th and 11th century B.C. Uh, we have about 630 manuscripts of the Iliad. Uh, the earliest, I think, is 7th century can't recall off the top of my head, but that's a long period of time. And nobody, there certainly are folks out there who engage in text criticism with regard to the Iliad, but no classical scholar is going to say that the Homer we have in a critical edition differs 
radically from the, the Homer that was read by 9th century B.C. Greeks and those, those forward. Um, when they approach the New Testament, what you get, though, when people approach the New Testament, they take a different standard um, rather than the, the, the standard of scholarly consensus. So, is that enough? <laughs> well, as long as you started talking about manuscripts, uh, um, are you familiar with Karsten Theda? He, yes, uh, he, he made the argument that the, the Magdalene papyrus, which is uh, uh, Matthew in, in book form, was from 50, the 50s A.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know anything about that argument? And is it, is it a good argument or is, he, is, is Theta a quack? Uh, it's con- maybe there's, maybe there's it, somewhere in between. Like everything, but- it's contested. But he's not a quack. He's a serious contender. Um, that manuscript, I th- or Theta... I, and the, the per, person he works with actually were working out of Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, um, which some call a, a seminary in Oxford or a Bible college of Oxford. It's actually a legitimate um, academic institution out of the University of Oxford. Yeah. Dr. Van Boris is sort of doing this. But um, well, the dating of it is difficult. The dating of it is difficult because literature in the, the, you know, the, the mid-first century Actual autographs. I don't know that we have a single one from any sort of literature out there. So, but what you have in this fragment, it, it certainly dates early in the, the palm they found in the in the the um, uh, the actual fragment dates very early. But you know, you, there's a range. Um, if the the style of writing would get them closer to a date, and they have nothing to compare it to. There's no measure a way of measuring it. So it's Hard to say. I, I hope that it's re- that early. Um, and they're not quacks. They're serious scholars. But what you find in New Testament is people assume a priori, be, that is before looking at the evidence, that, that this Christian theology can't be true. It had to have evolved. And so that's where you get the pr- mark and priority. Mark seems kind of primitive. When you get to John, it's a very developed Christology. They assume that it evolved when, it, in fact, they all say the same thing from different vantage points. Um, so the reason why people reject the this did you call it the Magdalene papyrus or fragment? I, I think they, well, I mean nobody rejects it as being an actual manuscript. Right. But it's, the it's, dating is yeah, the problem, yeah, and the nobody wants it that early. Something. If it's that early, that means it's it, it, it is the case as Papias and um, I almost said Plutarch um, Polycarp. Put it that Mark Matthew wrote first, uh, and we can't. It, we, that can't be because Matthew has high or a highly developed Christology. It wouldn't be that early because, of course, it all evolved and changed over time as the church grew and became political. So that's the pro, It's an ideological issue. It's not a question of of the facts anymore, and so it's hard to to contend with ideologues. As you, you're a philosopher, you know. You know, people who assume something to be the case without even looking at the evidence, they're hard to deal with. Spend time with Muslims, and that's what you get 100% of the time. All right. Uh, to tell us die. It is finished. <laughs>